This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Taya Miles. She is chair and professor in the Department of Afro-American and African Studies at the University of Michigan. I spoke with her on November 16, 2011, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in the studios at Michigan Radio at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. This interview is included in our show, Toward Living Memory. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. Okay. You don't have to move in. I'll move to you. I want you to be comfortable. Okay. Good. Can she hear me? Where are they? <laughs> oh, they're in Michigan. Aren't yes, they? I can hear you. Can you? <laughs> I can. Hi. Well, it's Krista. Hi. Hey, Krista. I, 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 I said your name a little while ago, and you weren't there. Oh, I'm here now. Well, I'm so glad you're there. Thank you. Where are you exactly, though? What town? Ann Arbor, Michigan. Okay. Are you at the university there? I am at Michigan Radio, mm-hmm. which is off campus. Oh, you're at Michigan Radio. Okay. Mm-hmm. Can I just try one more time on the microphone, make sure we got a good... I want you to say PowerPoint for me three times, please. PowerPoint, PowerPoint, PowerPoint. All right, I think we're good here. Okay, let me... Taya, let me see if what would they need um, from this end. I'm hearing a little bit of an echo. I wonder... Chris, do you think that's a, a headphone volume at that end? Okay. Mm-hmm. Hi. I'll, I'll I'll try dialing. This is Taya. Is, it, is that better? Um, can you can hear me better? Me? Yeah, I think. Oh, I'm still hearing it. Okay, I'll I'll try some more. It's a funny thing that happens. It's an echo at this end when the head when at the other end when the headphones okay. are too high at your end. But now I think it's gone, Chris. I'm not How's hearing that. It. That's good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Have you done this kind of ISDN interview before, Taya? Once. Okay. <laughs> I find it strangely intimate once you get into it. You know, people, when you say mm-hmm. this, they think that it's like talking on the phone, and it's really not. Right. It's, like a, it's like a Vulcan mind melt. <laughs> <laughs> Can you still hear me? Can you hear me, Krista? Yes. Are, okay. you, do you, are you having trouble hearing yourself? No, it's just that the mic looks far away, but I guess it's supposed to. No, you sound good. You okay. sound good at this end. Okay. You sound like yourself, which is really kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's a hard thing to do is sound like yourself. I'm not, I'm not joking. <laughs> um, so, Chris, are we ready? Or what do you, is that? Okay. All right. Yeah, go ahead. I, I like to. Hold on one second. Because I do oh, want. Oh, um, one, one second. There's an adjustment you, going yeah, on. Yeah, you don't need to look at me. Just okay. look forward like you were talking to her. Because when, okay. when you said the microphone was far away from you, it's mm-hmm. because you have a tendency to move a little bit. Oh, okay. So that's all right. That's the only reason why we, it did. I think okay. you're good now. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, do you have any questions for me before we start, or should we just plunge in? Um, I don't think I have questions. Okay. I don't think so. The great thing about this is... Um, it's it's edited later, so we get to have a real conversation. You know, it may get nonlinear at some point. That's fine. Mm-hmm. If you want to come okay. back to something, you can. Oh, good. And we can um, we can perfect it later on. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, I want to start with you, where I start with everyone. Uh, and I and I don't have a much of a sense of this. I don't think from from uh, the reading I did into your background. Uh, you know, was there a was there a religious or spiritual background to your childhood? 
There was, but it was one that I moved away from in college and after college. Mm -hmm. I was raised in a black Baptist church that was um, fairly conservative, especially around gender issues. Okay. And when I went to college and started studying feminism, I became very concerned about things I had learned and pulled away from that tradition. Okay. And um, where were the roots, or do you see the roots of your of your interest, your, your passion for history in your childhood? Absolutely. I think that the way in which I approach history comes from times I spent with my grandmother when I was a girl. When I was very young, my mother and I lived with my grandparents. And my grandmother was one of these women who just loved to tell stories and would tell them you know, throughout the day while she was going about her daily tasks. Mm. And I recall especially the stories that she told about living in Mississippi, coming north during the Great Migration, and the struggles that she faced as an African-American woman, a single mother, and domestic worker. Mm. And I think just hearing those stories and hearing how my grandmother felt so tied to her past, how she was always on that Mississippi farm that she grew up on and in the city at the same time, mm-hmm influenced the way I think about the past and how near the past feels to me. It's mm, really interesting. And, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued given the direction your scholarship has taken. I'm, I'm intrigued by the way you seem to describe this. You say um, that there was an oral history about Native American history from your grandmother, which is kind of vague. <laughs> so uh-huh. I'm wondering, you know, what does that mean? Not, you don't say she told us this or that, but there was an oral right, history right. about Native American history. So what's lurking there? Right. Well, you got me, Krista. That's pre- it's purposefully vague because as I have grown more knowledgeable about Native American history, Native American studies, and been engaged in conversation with Native people, I've learned that it's important to be very conscious and careful about making claims of Native ancestry. Hmm. What my grandmother told us when we were small, uh, what she told me and my cousins, was that her own father was both African-American and Native American, that his mother was Native American. However, I don't make claims to um, an Afro-Native identity, to a Black Indian identity or ancestry because I'm a scholar and I like to... um, verify things, and yeah. I haven't um, explored that family history yet. Okay. I, I have to say that I it also leapt out at me. Um, I don't know that I've ever written about this or talked about it much, but um, in my, I grew up in Oklahoma, <laughs> oh. which is really, res, right, it's very resonant right. with, with your work. And, Absolutely. Uh, um, and, I, you know, we'll, we'll end up talking about that a little bit, um, mm-hmm. just in terms of how that history is. In terms, in my childhood, it was passed on or not passed on. But in mm-hmm. my family, so I think in general, at least when I was growing up, I would say Oklahoma was a place. Well, Oklahoma was historically a place where people left their pasts behind. Mm-hmm. And um, in my family, there was a. I would say there was an oral history <laughs> that my great grandmother, who was still alive when I was a child, um, was part Cherokee. Mm-hmm. But I never, there was no information, right? There was right. no story attached to it. There was no, mm-hmm. I have no detail. And at, at the, you know, when I finally was curious enough to want to know more, everybody who might have known something was dead. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I, I, it, 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 I wonder if those, and you know, that kind of came through in what you just said that that those, those stories, don't transmit themselves intact somehow. Or right, right. And I think that in the African American and Native American conjoined context, part of the reason why those stories feel um, contentious. Mm-hmm is because of the history of violence, colonialism, and racism that shaped those stories. Right. So I'm thinking now about this wonderful line at the end of Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved, which is really influential for me in thinking about my scholarship. And this is the line where the narrator says that this was not a story to pass on. And you can read that in two ways. You can read that this was not a story to tell again, to pass on, Mm -hmm. or this was not a story to pass on, not a story to be missed. Mm. I think that these kinds of stories that my grandmother told me, that you heard from your family history, have both those elements to them. We need them, we want to explore them, and yet we know that in some ways they might be dangerous. Right. And they were dangerous for those those ancestors, in a way, even that they're not dangerous for us. They felt dangerous. Mm -hmm. Now... It sounds to me like even though there was this story within your story, you got a much fuller and surprising understanding of that intersection of African-American and Native American uh, history as a, as a student or as a graduate student. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's right. The stories my grandmother told me were always swirling around in my head. They were so real to me and so alive. And strangely enough... When I was in college and I first started studying African-American literature and I first started reading the narratives of escaped slaves, I would get so upset about these, these narratives in my dorm room that I would call my grandmother up <laughs> late at night you know, from co- the college campus and just tell her that I, I couldn't bear what I was reading. And um, this is the strange part. Her response to my question, her response to my sadness was to tell me stories about her father who was himself a slave as a child, and this is the, the, same, um, the same person who she said had Native ancestry. And when she would tell those stories, she would claim all kinds of amazing qualities for him. She would talk about his longevity, how he lived to be over 100 years old. She would talk about his keen eyesight and um, his amazing prowess in terms of his independence, his ability to stand on two feet. And she would attribute these to the Native American ancestry that she was claiming for him. So she would respond to my uh, desire for comfort with these stories about Native ancestry, and that stuck with me. I always um, kind of carried that. And When I came to graduate school, I began to think about two things. One was, why did my grandmother and why did other African Americans cling so closely to these ideas about kinship and alliance with Native Americans. Mm. And why did they think about Native American ancestry as being uh, imbued with some kind of um, special power, some kind of specialness that perhaps African American, African ancestry did not hold for them? So I wanted to explore that, what that need was. At the same time, I wanted to explore what the relationships um, really were in ways that I could verify through historical research. Right. So even though I have yet to research my own family history, I expect that will be a retirement project. (laughs) Um, What my grandmother told me really did shape the kinds of work I ended up doing in the academy. 
Do you feel that you've you've started to answer those questions for yourself? That uh, what, it, what 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 was special about that that mixed mm-hmm. identity? I think so. I think there are multiple layers to uh, that answer. But one thing that I think has emerged from my work and the work of other people uh, in this field and the work of creative artists who are thinking about similar questions is that African Americans are in many ways homeless on this land. Mm. I mean, of course, we, we, our ancestors, were snatched from our own homeland. We were brought to this place that was foreign to us. And we had to find a way to make this place fit us and to to belong here. And I think that when you are a people searching for belonging, it makes sense to think about the indigenous population who was on this land before anyone else and to want to connect with that indigenous population. I think that's part of the power that that story holds. Do you think that happens at a at a conscious level? Or, or I mean... I really don't think so. Yeah, I don't think that that aspect about belonging and uh, I guess what I'm describing as um, a shared collective search for home yeah. is necessarily conscious. Now, did your grandmother know about the history of uh, Native Americans having black African slaves? If she did, I heard no inkling of it. <laughs> Um, I don't think she did. And um, I don't know if she would have told me if she had um, any knowledge of that. Really, the story that she wanted me to hold on to was one about partnership leading to survival. Mm. And the idea of Native Americans owning black slaves was completely opposite from what she wanted me to take away from the story. She was trying to give me a gift of strength, perseverance, comfort, sustenance through those stories. And slavery undoes those gifts. Hmm. You know, a parallel, again, very different, but in my child is, is growing up Southern Baptist, right? Hmm. And only learning and having no sense of what it was in the Southern that made Southern Baptist Southern Baptists, except that they were mm-hmm. the only ones going to heaven, right? Mm-hmm. And then learning in college that they were, that the Southern Baptists were the Baptists who wanted to keep their slaves. And Mm -hmm. I remember going back and asking my grandfather, who was a Southern Baptist preacher, and, you know, he was a person with a second-grade education, but my sense was that he didn't know that. If Mm -hmm. he did, he had buried it so deeply Mm -hmm. that that was simply a piece of history that had been not passed on, as you say. Right. Uh Um, And I do think... Uh, and you must have this experience when you talk about your research and your scholarship. I don't know that Americans, that in the American mm, cultural memory, m- many people w- know that Indians owned slaves in the Southeast and in what was called Western, what was called Indian Territory. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're right. One of the first things people tend to tell me when they hear me speak or read my work is that they had no idea yeah. this was the case. And it was the same for me. It, it took me, you know, four years of college and I think maybe three years of graduate school before I knew about this. And I, I already had an investment in the question. Right. Yeah. And something that was there in your, um, 
I mean, I think about growing up in Oklahoma and this, that knowing that it was f- formerly the territory of the five civilized tribes, right? Mm-hmm. And never even questioning that language, the mm-hmm. five civilized tribes. Right. <laughs> um, and then I think it was in your, I think it was in your, were in one of your books that you, you talked about how for wealthy, especially, you know, these, especially these wealthy Cherokee um, people who you studied, landowners, um, owning slaves was part of being and demonstrating that civilization. Right, right. So Cherokee people and other people of the so-called five civilized tribes were really under assault, especially in the 18th century and early 19th century, by first Europeans and then Euro-Americans who wanted to take their land. And the U.S. government came in and basically said, that if you want to maintain your homelands, you need to demonstrate to us that you can live with us in this space and that you are civilized. Hmm. As odd as it sounds, and I still can't get my mind around this, to the U.S. government and to its citizens, civilization included the ownership of black slaves. Yeah. And well, so it did Native in the British people, Empire as well, right? I mean, right, right. Yeah. And so Native people took up slaveholding took up chattel slavery in some ways to demonstrate that they were civilized. Yeah. And, you know, this, this fact and the stories you tell, it's, it's so painful because it's, it's disenfranchisement layered on disenfranchisement. Mm-hmm. It's brutality mm-hmm. layered on mm-hmm. brutality. Right. It's difficult to learn about it to confront it, to try to talk about it and think about it. And I find that when I do share information with people, that sometimes they leave those conversations or they leave the space where maybe I've given a lecture and they still have in their mind the story that maybe their grandparents told them or the the story they want to believe about these relationships, which to me is another demonstration of the ways in which we need and use these ideas of the past, we need and use history today. We wrap history around ourselves, and we use it to define who we are. And we sometimes don't want to face the fact that the stories we've always heard uh, may have been flawed or limited or even wrong. Right. And that's true collectively as well as Absolutely. Kind of individually in our family. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, let's make this a little bit more three-dimensional for somebody who might be listening and you know, talk about, I mean, it's interesting, your your way into Cherokee history and, and all the history you do is through the experience of African-American women. Is that, would you say mm-hmm. that's a fair statement? Mm-hmm. And so um, your book, um, The Ties That Bind, is about, um, kind of has us this, the, per, the person we zero in on is this figure of doll. Why don't you right. tell the story of doll and shoe, bo- shoe, uh, yeah, shoe boots? <laughs> that's right. Uh-huh. Well, first I'd like to back up a bit Mm -hmm. uh, and tell you how I came to this story. I was doing dissertation research on uh, black and native relations in the South, and I was looking for a story that I thought would help me to both understand and unravel the complexity of these relationships. And um, it just so happened that after months of pouring through, uh, especially secondary sources, I came across a footnote that said that a man named Shoe Boots married a black woman, and this was the first black Cherokee marriage within the Cherokee Nation. 
So that footnote really struck me, the idea that there would be a marriage right. between a Cherokee man and a black woman that was recorded uh, in the early 1800s. So and, I wanted and to, he was a wealthy, wealthy Cherokee man, right? Wealthy. I would say that in our terms, he was middle class. Oh, okay. So he was, um, he was um, solid financially, but he wasn't one of the wealthiest Cherokee slaveholders who owned something like uh, 20 or more slaves, and in some cases, 100 or more slaves. Okay. He only had a handful of slaves. Only, I say. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to investigate the story and find out what was going on. And as I began to investigate, I learned that um, that footnote left out so much. And in my mind, this relationship was not what we would uh, describe today as um, a marriage. Yeah. This was a relationship between uh, a grown man in his 40s who went to South Carolina and either bought or traded for an adolescent black girl, brought her back to the Cherokee Nation, and um, began to have children with her. Dahl was owned by Shibuts, and he never freed her formally. At the same time, as I dug further into the story, I learned that there were all kinds of layers to their relationship which located Dahl and her children within Cherokee community in a way that brought some degree of protection to her children, even as Cherokees developed a more stringent system of black slaveholding. Mm. I mean, there's that, but there was a piece of writing that's near the beginning of the book. Um, I think it was Shoe Boots maybe making a case for his children. Yes. Right? And he, mm-hmm. but what's so striking and painful about that is um, he's making a case for these children he's had by Dahl. Mm-hmm. And he, he uses the, you know, he basically says, I debased myself. Exactly. You know, yes. and had these children, and nevertheless, then he's wanting them to be uh, treated decently. Right, right. I mean, this is one of these moments um, where the pain that we were discussing earlier um, really is seated. Because on the one hand, we can view this uh, emancipation document as being positive. It's an example of a Native American man freeing the children that he had with a black woman. But at the same time, he does that through a language of negativity in which he um, reiterates Dahl's status as as a slave woman. And in the original document, it's underlined Mm. that she is his slave. Mm. And then... I guess you asked this as a historian. I certainly asked it as a reader. Did he say it that way because he was trying to um, make a strong case, right, to these peers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that they would need him to make that confession before they could take him seriously? Or did he say it because that's how he felt? This is exactly the kind of question that we grapple with as scholars because uh, all I had to go on in terms of analyzing his motivations was the document. Yeah. The document says what it says, and we can ask questions of it. We can contextualize it and see uh, where we get from that. But um, what I think is that Shibuts was responding to a situation in which Cherokee political leaders were becoming more and more focused on separating themselves from blacks, separating Cherokees from blacks, making it clear that black people would only become Cherokee citizens 
uh, in the most narrow circumstances, making it clear that black people, Afro-Cherokees, could not hold office in what was becoming a more formalized Cherokee government. So yes, he was speaking to a political body that did not look kindly upon what he had done, which was having children who are both of African and Cherokee descent. But at the same time, the fact that I didn't find any evidence that he freed Dahl, the fact that she, late in her life, was still listed as property in the family of um, another Cherokee family, really says to me that his motivation was probably mixed. Right, right. So another... um there's another Cherokee figure you you focused on, and, and th- th- this is a story of wealth, of plantation, um, mm-hmm. Diamond Hill. But I, I want to circle into that with, I notice uh, you, uh, in a personal statement, say that you are a passionate fan of old houses. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I just, it, it strikes me that there's a connection between that and the fact that um, the public history project, and I want to talk about mm-hmm. that whole notion of public history, mm-hmm. um, at least uh, uh, it, s- it seems to be centered in part in your work around uh, an historic house. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Why do, you lo- why do you love old houses? Tell me about that. I don't know, Krista. I mean, I, um, if I could speculate, I, I didn't know this at the time, but when I was uh, very small, my grandmother's house was um, a craftsman bungalow. And um, I loved that place. I loved being there with her. And I, I think I may have attached myself to that kind of a building, um, not even knowing that I was doing that. Mm-hmm. But here's something else that's um, maybe unusual, probably unusual. Um, later on, when my mother and I lived on our own um, near downtown Cincinnati um, in an area that was economically depressed, I really enjoyed uh, kind of walk in the neighborhood by myself. And a number of the buildings in our neighborhood were quite old, 19th century, early 20th century row houses. And many of them were abandoned. And um, I would go inside. My mom would probably mm. die when she, <laughs> when she hears this. Right. But I, I would go inside these old buildings and just, and just explore and think about who might have lived there um, years and years ago and what their lives might have been like. Because houses, old houses hold stories, don't they? They do. They do. And it, it feels tangible. You walk in and um, it's almost as if you're transported. I, I think this is something that in older cultures, you know, in Europe, um, especially in you know, places like Ireland or Scotland, you know, they have, mm-hmm. I mean, the whole ghost thing, mm-hmm. which is the only thing Americans really know about, is, 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 is also about an accumulation of lives and stories. Right. Right. Maybe you're sensitive to that because you're a an historian, a storyteller. <laughs> and and did know. did this public history project with the Van House and with that whole story of this wealthy Cherokee slave owner? I mean, he had what hundreds of um, or well, nearly a hundred over a hundred over a hundred slaves in the first decade mm-hmm. of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, but did that start with you visiting that house? It did. It did. I was working on the first book that we just talked about, mm-hmm. uh, the book about Shibuts and Dahl. And Shibuts and Dahl would have lived in the early 1800s around, um, you know, 45 minutes away, you know, now in our time from this large plantation. 
So I went to the plantation house, which is now a state historic site in Georgia, because I wanted to get a sense of um, slavery in the time period. I wanted to get a physical sense. And that was the only thing standing. I mean, shoe boots and, mm. and adults cabin, the place where their family lived, no longer stands. I went to the river where they lived and stood there and um, reflected on that place. But I wanted to experience a built environment that could perhaps take me back in time, viscerally, to this period of Cherokee slaveholding. So I went to the, to the chief fan house and um, took a tour. And this was in the late 90s. And part of me, I will have to admit this, part of me was taken by learning about the house itself, the structure, the architecture. Um, I was fascinated by a number of the architectural details, such as um, all the little tiny Cherokee roses that are carved into the moldings mm. at the house. Mm. But at the same time, I was quite focused on the question of slavery. And throughout that whole tour, we heard nothing about slavery, now, nothing about Did you know that he specifically held slaves, or did you just knew that, that a landowner of that, of that wealth in that time would have had slaves? I knew that he held slaves you because did. at that point I had been doing enough research to know about the Van family okay. through primary sources. Uh-huh. So I took the tour, and slavery wasn't mentioned, although the fact that it was a plantation was mentioned. Hmm. African-Americans weren't mentioned, uh, although the Van family's wealth was mentioned. Mm. And, of course, these two things are tied. They're linked. You can't separate them. The plantation existed because slaves were there to work it. The Van family's wealth came from slave labor. So by the end of the tour, I was having this dual experience. One, I was enjoying the house aesthetically. uh, And at the same time, I was sort of appalled at the way in which this house was being celebrated as um, a gorgeous architectural feat and the way in which the family's wealth was being lauded and black people's suffering was completely invisible. Right. What did you do? Did you say anything at that point to the people who were curating? Or I did. I, well, I asked a question. Mm-hmm. I asked the tour guide uh, where slaves lived on the plantation. And um, the person who was working at the time, I have to be fair, and say that she was you know, very young. Maybe she was a college student who was working there at the summer you know, part-time. She was completely flustered, as if she had never thought about the question before, never heard it before. And she got her walkie-talkie and radioed back to the main office to ask how she should answer the question. Hmm. And um, that, to me, was the beginning of, of um, the book that you talked about, The House on Diamond Hill. I felt that there really needed to be a more complex, more feeling, more diverse interpretation of the state historic site. You wrote somewhere um, that you became committed to a more ethical telling of the story. Is that right? Yeah. And then mm-hmm. that gets at the work of the historian and, and I, I, the discipline of that. And I see you in places, you know. It's like you, it seems to me that at different points in your career, you've rediscovered the fact that his, telling history is never pure, that you're always coming at it from some direction. Mm-hmm. And you being, I don't know, maybe because you do then collect so much information, you know, in a way, not, not being haunted, but just being very keenly aware that 
there are, there would be many ways to tell the same story that you're immersing yourself in. Right. Well, I think I came to historical scholarship um, from a sideways route. I never thought of myself as becoming a historian. I only was aware that I was interested in the past and it held a good deal of power for me personally, and that it seemed to hold a good deal of power for my family in terms of the ways in which we defined ourselves and thought about our place in society. So I came to this work really with a feeling that studying the past and sharing the past was about making it usable for people today and was at the same time about being a witness for people in the past whose lives have been forgotten about or who suffered unjustly, who, you know, somehow my mind, um, uh, they would be honored mm -hmm. by having me and other people who do this work remember them. And that's what I was trying to do with Dahl. I wanted to honor her by remembering her and by giving her a central place in the story you, you've written somewhere about, or you mentioned um, that at some point you had a crisis of faith in history that almost led you to quit the field. What, what was that about, and what, what pulled you back in? Well, I've had a number of crises <laughs> as a researcher, yeah. um, and um, often they've taken place in archives, actually, when I've, <laughs> when I've, when I've tried to reconcile um, what it is that I want to do with what exists or with what other people um, think ought to be done in historical writing. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of these moments uh, was in a graduate student classroom when I learned that uh, Native people owned black slaves. Another moment was when I talked with an archivist um, at a state archive uh, where a number of historians had traveled to do work on Southern history. And I told him that I wanted to study African-American and Native American women. And he laughed uh, in his response to me. Hmm. I was still a graduate student at the time. Right. And uh, I was very vulnerable to, um, to being told that my work didn't have value. So when this archivist laughed, laughed at me and then said that African-American women were not important enough and Native American women were not important enough to be recorded, let alone if you thought about them together. Um, I just thought that my, my work was all over and that I should just pack my bags and leave. <laughs> I packed my bags and leave graduate school, that I would never be able to do what I felt so passionate about, which was to unearth and tell these kinds of stories. And uh, at that time, I, I went to the office of a mentor of mine, a Native American historian, Jeannie O'Brien, and told her that I felt that it was all over. And um, she told me that if I knew that Shoe Boots lived and if I knew that Doll lived, that I needed to keep looking for them because surely I would find some record of their existence, of their lives, to be able to fill out that picture. And that gave me the affirmation I needed to keep looking. And it was within a matter of probably six months that I found the document you mentioned uh, where Shibuts emancipated his children. That was the first thing I found mm. that told me, yes, I can tell this story. And this language that, that you used a minute ago about honoring, witnessing, um, 
and making this knowledge, making this fuller story useful um, to people now is, is kind of a definition of this, of this emerging field of public history. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And is this a new way to, to think about history and the work of historians? Well, my sense is that people have been doing public history for decades. Yeah. And um, especially uh, museum practitioners, archivists, people in local communities have thought about their work as being usable and useful for public. But it's academic historians um, for whom this field might feel new. Okay. So I think what's happening now in the field is that it's becoming more visible because uh, people with doctorates are thinking about how it might be important to try to um, reach a broader audience with the kinds of questions and interpretations that we bring to bear on history. And it's kind of the academy, which it feels like to me this is happening in a lot of disciplines. The academy making a different kind of connection with where people have always sought to live with this kind of knowledge, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if it's been museums, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that actually people who aren't historians would visit and learn something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's about technology. That's kind of an, a roundabout effect of technology, too. <laughs> I think so. And I think it's also um, a realization on the part of um, perhaps uh, even more recent generations of scholars that if we want to make a difference in communities, if we have um, a sense of political urgency around some issues, that we have to make links, we have to make ties with um, where historical questions are being lived out in the real world. That we can't just write specialized monographs that are read by you know, a small subset of people. Right. So I think it's that, that sense too, that sense of um, maybe mission on the part of um, an ever-expanding group of scholars, many of whom are scholars of color, that is making public history um, a much more um, viable and visible sub-area of history in general. And, you know, as I was reading into you and just learning some of the things that you know that are, that are about all of us, I mean, they are about America, right? Mm-hmm. They are about all of our history in which all of our ancestors, whatever color their skin, were complicit mm-hmm. um, and involved um, I was thinking about an event I was at a couple of years ago, um, which brought together, together a lot of amazing people, um, in the nonprofit world, uh, the academic world. And there was a, a pretty senior person in a, a, a big foundation who was talking about initiatives to to bring the issue of race and the history of race, um, and the and the history in particular of, of what had ha- what happened to African Americans in this country, in, in kind of into um, imagination in a new way. This was around the election of President Obama, mm. and somebody else who was there, and this is just I've just remembered this this particular thing as I'm talking to you said, I don't think we, can, we, we should, can let ourselves reckon with the history of African Americans until we reckon with what happened to Native peoples. Hmm. Okay. And, but what happened, so, but the effect of that, and I, I just wonder if this is something that, that you become aware of, because you're working at the intersection of these two groups. 
Right. It was almost like the effect of it was almost to stop the discussion cold, right? right? right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it was too much, right? It's mm-hmm. too much to do all of that at once. And so, you know, my sense was nothing will happen. Mm-hmm. Is is that a dynamic that, that or is this, are there dynamics related to that that, that you come across? Mm-hmm. I think there have been those dynamics. I hope they're changing. Mm-hmm. It's been the case that scholars who focus on a a particular ethnic studies area, such as African-American studies or um, Latina-Latina studies, have felt that uh, there's almost a competition around, you know, which group was the most oppressed, which group should be at the the center point of analysis or discussion right now. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has done exactly what you've suggested. It's not productive, and it shuts down a dialogue. What new projects in ethnic studies are uncovering is that these groups cross paths in many ways historically. All of these groups, um, every group in the United States um, has had a a point of linkage, intersection, connection, overlap with other groups. And that until we understand all those complexities, we don't understand the history of this nation and the ways in which we need to and can work together in the future to build a more democratic society. So, so I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm often aware, um, of, I'm aware, I mean, I'm not the only person who's aware of this, of how hard it is to have these discussions or what to do with this history in a way, because mm-hmm. it is so painful and shameful. Right. Right. And I wonder what you've learned from your research and and from the perspective you bring as a public historian about, you know, how do we start a new kind of discussion about race, racism, um, slavery, whether it's Native Americans or right or uh, mm-hmm. or whites? It seems to me that another thing that goes wrong that even the language kind of um, booby traps the discussions, um, that when you start talking about oppression or when you start talking about racism, people start defining themselves over against that language. Mm-hmm. With, and even the people who really want to be, want a new discussion to happen. So I'm just curious, you know, what are, what are you learning things about, about finding whole new ways in? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is another place where methods that are used by people who identify as public historians really come into play mm-hmm. because these projects that are situated within public history are collaborative projects. They're partnerships. They're not just about um, one lone scholar, you know, in some kind of garret, you know, thinking great thoughts. They're about people showing up in particular places, out there in communities, at public sites, in museums, and working with other people. And I think that that kind of spirit opens conversations. Mm -hmm. It makes people more willing to listen. I experienced that personally with my work in Georgia. Um, When I first arrived at the Chief Van House site and and then um, kept coming back to do research there, I think there was a little bit of um, distance on the part of the people who worked at the site. And uh, these were white Southerners. These are white Southerners Mm -hmm. who work at the site still. There was some distance there. I think they wondered what I was all about and uh, 
what I was doing, trying to talk about African-American experience. I think they worried that I might try to be especially critical as a black woman coming into that place, asking those questions. But what I found was that over time, when I kept showing up, we found ways to connect with each other. Hmm. We found ways to talk with each other um, despite and through the pain of this past. So, for instance, I learned after probably five years of going to the site that one of the rangers at the site who had uh, a, a good deal of input on the interpretation there was herself descended from white slaveholders. Mm-hmm. And when she told me this, and I have a permission to, to repeat this story, when she told me this, um, it was a revelation that brought her to tears that she had been holding back from interpreting black experience in this Cherokee site because of the shame of her own family's history. Right. When we talked about that and we kind of pushed through that together, she became the greatest champion for African-American interpretation at the site. I mean, she applied for funding. Hmm. Uh, she, uh, um, she researched and actually mounted an exhibit that's all about African-American experience at the Chief Van House. But it took that relational foundation, that collaboration to make it happen. Also, I think the time, right? You said five years. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Americans don't really like things to take And I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. I just knew that I wanted to keep showing up and, and um, trying to learn about this place. I mean, I was looking at... Um, yeah, uh, I think this was part of uh, the public history project. You just did, this is this seems simple, but it's the title of a research project you did with graduate students, and the title is um, "Blacks, Indians, and the Making of America." Somehow, mm-hmm. that's a very spacious way to talk about something that's fraught with complexity and difficulty. And and mm-hmm. do you know what I'm saying? Often, when we frame these discussions. Um, they they get framed in terms of, uh, as I said, oppression, racism, the what went wrong, mm-hmm. um, and then people don't can't find that their way into the circle to have the discussion. But this mm-hmm. is a hard thing to talk about. I think as a white person, you know, who am I mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to talk about racism being a difficult word? Well, I think we all have to talk about it because we're in it together. Yeah, and that's one thing that really stands out for me in my work, the title that you just mentioned, I think represents a movement outward in a couple of directions in my thinking over time. Mm -hmm. I used to think about black Indians as a category. And then as I continued to do the work, I realized that this is not just a question of black Indians, uh, a particular identity configuration. This is about the United States, you know, this nation as a whole, because it really is um, the labor of enslaved Native Americans, a whole other piece of this, this history that people often also don't think about, yeah. and the labor of enslaved African Americans that took place on the land of indigenous people that built this country. Yeah. Yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I want to ask you, there's a truism and actually, my son said this back to me recently. You know, if we, if we don't know history, we repeat it, right? We've mm-hmm. all heard this. We've all learned it. Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. think that's true? 
I say it a lot. <laughs> um, I, I do think that it's true um, in some respects. And um, it's frustrating because I see it happening. Yeah. I see it happening in, in um, the cases that have been in the news in recent months and years about the Cherokee Nation and the question of whether or not the Cherokee Nation would continue to enfranchise the descendants of enslaved people. Right. So this is Those, recent in this year, right, mm-hmm. in 2011, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, there was a decision by the, the Cherokee Nation took citizenship away from African-Americans who descended from slaves of wealthy Cherokees. So right. right. And that's right. And this mm-hmm. has been uh, an issue that has been ongoing and uh, a point of conflict, you know, all the way back you know, to the Reconstruction era. So it's not new, mm-hmm. um, but it, it did take... Um, uh, a particularly uh, nasty turn uh, in recent years. Um, it's currently um, semi-resolved, I think, with um, the descendants of enslaved people being re-enfranchised. Oh, really? But, mm-hmm. but where I think where I think this connects back to your question of history repeating itself is that people have been aware. That people who were closely involved in this question have been aware that the relationship between Cherokee citizens and descendants of former slaves goes back at least to 1866, to the treaty between the Cherokee Nation and the U.S. government, um, which said that the Cherokee Nation would grant freedom and citizenship to their slaves. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's a short historical memory because it starts at a place where we're looking at uh, conflict and contention and enslavement and oppression and subjugation. And I really think we have to take that history further back to get a broader picture so as not to repeat what were really the mistakes of the 19th century. So here's what I mean by that, Krista. I mean that we focus on this period of slaveholding when Cherokee people and black people actually interacted in a multiplicity of ways way before the 19th century. And one of those ways that was very important um, was as enslaves themselves of Europeans, right, right. slaves of colonists, right. both Native people and Black people were enslaved often together on plantations. So if we stretch our memory back and try to have a, a fuller understanding of what happened, I think we can find inspiration for ways to build bridges today. If we, if we only think back you know, a couple hundred years or so, um, I don't think that we have what we need. We don't have the resources that we need to uh, really move forward with narratives that are generative. Yeah, I really like that. And I think that that is getting at what I'm, what I'm discovering in your work that you're doing that's, that's different and that does open up things. Um, right. So when, when, we, when we talk, I mean, just as a culture, about revisiting history that's difficult so that we will, won't repeat it, it's, it's, it's the dark it's right. It's the, it's the mm-hmm. worst moments. It's the worst mistakes. Mm-hmm. And you are not in any way covering that up. I mean, you're bringing that into mm-hmm. the light, but you're also putting into the larger, in a way you could say, you're putting it into the context of relationship over generations right. and hundreds of years mm-hmm. um, that's larger than that darkest moment. Right. In a way that just like you had five years with those with the people at the the van house, and then because of a relationship, mm-hmm. then you were able to mm-hmm. start a new conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's something that you wrote. You wrote in the New York Times um, 
after this this con- this controversial um, decision of the Cherokee Nation, which um, to strip citizenship, but but the context you put in is just what you just said that, that the Cherokee people and the progeny of those once enslaved in their territory share a story. It is a story of colonialism, slavery, removal, civil war, injustice, survival, and resilience. Yet and still, yet and still, one that their ancestors shaped together. Mm-hmm. If I didn't see light in the story, I could not tell it. Because that's why I'm doing this work. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this work to try to contribute something that can move us toward healing, you know, across and among communities that have experienced such divisiveness. Yeah. But it's, I just, it's really interesting because you are bringing the light in by telling the truth and just making the discussion bigger, right? Making the, creating a larger mm-hmm. vision, e- mm-hmm. even of the, even of the components that are there in history that can be part of that healing, right? That mm-hmm. predate what went wrong. Well, I think about stretching the story back, as far back in time as we can find evidence to support it, mm-hmm. and stretching the story forward to think about what's the future going to be like for um, our descendants now. And I don't just mean descendants of black people, native people. I mean all of us now. What's that future going to be like? And how can we lean on what we know about the past to reach toward a more positive future? And I also think about um, broadening the story, I guess, um, up. And this gets to, you know, I don't know, maybe sort of a metaphysical kind of aspect, maybe you would say a spiritual aspect, to what I'm trying to do, which is to connect us across time um, to these individuals who really are our ancestors, who deserve to be remembered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I can't help but wondering, I mean, what you just said right, right there um, is kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a way of thinking about social healing and it's not specific to the healing of this relationship of African Americans and Native Americans in American history. You know, as I was reading about you and thinking about talking to you, so one way to talk, think about news is, you could say that it's, it's history being written in the making, right? It's history mm-hmm. unfolding. Um, uh, and I just wondered, um, you know, right now in particular, this, the, this, this whole exercise of telling What's happening? The whole the notion of truth mm-hmm. is has become more and more suspect, and we don't trust the the tellers, right? Mm-hmm. I just wonder how you watch that as a public historian, and if you, you know, if you know things and think about things that um, that you would like to inject into our imagination as we think about <laughs> how we take in what's happening, what we're being told, mm-hmm. and what to do with it. Well, one thing I think that um, historical researchers and writers do is to always hold the tellers um, as a suspect mm-hmm. for having their judgment clouded by their own motivations and emotions and their particular context. So when we look at people who um, gave testimony in, in courtrooms of the past, for example, or um, who recorded information on documents that we look at now, we can't trust them. Right. <laughs> I mean, we can, we can read what they've said, what they've recorded, and try to think about what it meant. But we always have to think about um, what's compelling them 
to say what they're saying or to write what they're writing. I think it's the same in the present moment. I mean, none of us are free from all of the, the weight of our position in society, of our sense of selves, of political exigencies, and that includes journalists. Right. So um, I think we always have to try to maintain those layers of interpretation when we come to stories as they're presented in the news or anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, what you called big history, capital B, capital H. <laughs> as you were living through it with the election of Barack Obama, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you... You, uh, there's one place where you quote Ralph Ellison writing of history of blacks in Indian territory, but it could apply to any number of things. The sheer unexpectedness of life mm-hmm. in these United States. Mm-hmm. I love that quote. <laughs> yeah, and it seems like that was something you rediscovered in that. I, I mean, you wrote uh, the the American populace. You were talking about after the election, populace mm-hmm. was shiny and new to me after November the fourth. Open minded, open hearted, and mm-hmm. ready for the dawn. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about your experience of that and, you know, how that unfolds, how you put that all into context even now as that history continues to roll out. Well, there are a number of issues mm-hmm. that, that we could talk about um, regarding that moment. It's a different moment now, mm-hmm. obviously. But on the question of big history, I, mean, I, I used to think about um, what I'm calling big history as uh, political history, basically, the history of presidents and and um, the important things that big people have done in our society. Yeah. And I always felt alienated from that. It wasn't something that I you know, personally cared very much about. Uh, I, I cared about um, really the little people, people who um, were ignored, people who might have been, you know, for instance, cleaning the bedchambers of those presidents. So I was mm-hmm. really struck when I got completely caught up in presidential history at the moment of, of the last election. I didn't expect it of myself, but I think that I was tapping into what was a larger enthusiasm uh, on the part of the public about what that particular moment of change could mean for us. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think I think one thing I think what I want to ask you is this: um, we talk ad nauseum about twenty four seven news cycles and all of that, the immediacy of it. Mm-hmm. So. So every moment, every crisis, every challenge, every step, every misstep gets just is driven home with is reported. Um, and but you can you could say you know you can you can step back from the details you can step back from poll numbers or partisan vitriol or any of the specifics and you can also say that there was this moment of big history of the election of Barack Obama and then reality sets mm-hmm. in right and in fact this right. is a challenging moment mm-hmm. the basic difficulty of life and leadership and politics sets in and I just mm-hmm. wonder as you watch like something like this because um, I often think about this moment in history and American history. Like how will people look back a hundred years and have this feeling right. that what we think is really dramatic that's happening right now might not mm-hmm. look dramatic at all and something we're not mm-hmm. paying attention to, mm-hmm. right? Or, you know, today's analysis of what the, how the presidency of Barack Obama will be, will go down in history is just absurd. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder mm-hmm. if, if you bring any particular perspective as you take all this in because you're a historian. Well, I agree with you that we don't know. I think we have no idea. And for me, that's borne out 
when I look at the records that I build my uh, works of history out of and see what it was people were thinking then and what I can make of it now, um, these are vastly different interpretations. And what makes a difference, I think, is time. <laughs> so, uh, you know, over which we have, have no control. <laughs> that's right. That's right. There's so much coming at us right now, and we have no time to reflect on it and to make sense of it. So I think that we're all walking around in states of confusion uh-huh. about what's really going on and what it means, but we won't know until much later when uh, the future historians do their work. Um, what were the most important issues that we faced in this moment? Is that a comfort to you? How, how, how does that work in you, having that sense? One comfort that I have is knowing that there are students right now who are learning how to do historical work, who are passionate about it, and that our history will be in their hands. I do take comfort in that, even as I worry about the large and pressing questions of um, climate change, um, global strife and conflict, you know, um, reductions of um, food stores and food production. I'm worried about all of those many things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do take heart in knowing that um, we really have uh, students right now who are you know, stout of heart and mind who are going to come at these questions and try to tackle them in the future. Mm-hmm. So something we haven't touched on but we need to is that your work, your work of shining a light on uh, Cherokee slaveholding, of black slaves is uh, is painful and controversial for for Cherokee people. I mean, you, you tell a number of stories in your that you write about um, people really, in a way, not wanting you to bring this out into the open. That that it's so difficult. And um, has that been hard for you? It has been hard in moments mm-hmm. um, to feel that. Um, that my work might not be accepted or valued um, by some people because of their desire to um, look away from this past. But I have to say that my experience of doing the work and sharing it um, really reflects what I have found in the history. And that is, at the same time that there are people who will turn away, there are people who will open up. And this is one thing that I really feel inspired by and that um, keeps me returning to what really is uh, an incredibly difficult and painful part of our collective past, which is slavery. And that is, at the same time that there were individuals who were doing atrocious, inhumane things, there were always individuals and groups who were confronting that and facing them down and willing to risk their own lives for others. If we didn't have that to hold on to, uh, I don't think that I could do this work. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing today. You know, there are some who don't want to face this, don't want to acknowledge it, uh, don't want to apologize for it. But there are many others who do want to do all those things and who want to build bridges into the future. Your husband is uh, from a Plains, Northern Plains tribe, is that right? Mm-hmm, yep. Mm-hmm. And that means that your that in-laws... Are Native mm-hmm. American, and your right. children are both Native and Black, right? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm just wondering, um, well, a couple things. You know, how how have your families? How has this extended African American Native American family of yours reacted 
to this research of yours, to mm-hmm. what you've learned? Do you, were they curious? Do you talk to them about it? And how do they take it in? I talk to them about it some, and some have read it, some haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of my family members on both my side and my husband's side um, don't read um, this kind of material. Yeah. So mostly um, it comes out through conversation. And uh, one thing that I think makes this subject matter safer for my husband's family to think about is that, of course, they were from the Plains, mm-hmm. from Montana, from Canada, and they weren't involved in, um, in these kinds of racialized relationships that Southern Native people were involved in. Yeah. So that creates um, a, a bit of a, I guess, a, a bubble of... Um, of comfort around this. It's not their but history it, in that sense. It's not their history. Mm-hmm. But there is a different kind of history uh, for black people and Native people on the plains that is just as painful that uh, we have not been able to discuss. And that's the history of uh, black buffalo soldiers who were, of course, employed by the U.S. Army and who in the 1870s, 80s, and so on, were stationed uh, on reservations in the West. Mm. There was um, a good deal of abuse of Native people that took place as the U.S. military tried to uh, compel them to stay on those reservation lands. And um, as difficult as it is to face up to this, African-American men participated in that. So there are so many stories, Krista, so many that that unfold. And because there are um, 500 or more uh, Native tribes or nations within the United States I mean, we could be telling these stories and they'd they'd all look different. We could tell them, you know, for hours. Right. So in terms of making history useful, I mean, I wonder, you know, what does that look like when you you see that happen? When you, you know, and I don't know what an example would be, either in Mm -hmm. people you encounter through your research or even, I don't know, how you talk to your, I don't know how old your children are, but how you talk to your children about their Mm -hmm. history. Mm Mm-hmm. My children are three. Okay. I have, uh, have seven-year-olds who are twins. So, yeah. um, for me, making history useful is about having, um, having a voice, making a contribution to the ways in which people imagine themselves relating in uh, a broader shared culture and a broader shared society. So by unearthing these stories of the past that demonstrate without a doubt, that people from various groups that think they now should be divided actually interacted on a number of registers historically, mm-hmm. I think um, creates an incentive and also in some ways creates um, a map for how we can interact today. And have you seen, have you, have you, I mean, I think also this probably takes time, right? We've talked a lot about time. I mean, so mm-hmm. this scholarship of yours is still very new, but... Mm-hmm. Mm, so I'm not sure this is a fair question, but have you seen interactions, specific relationships between, let's say, Cherokees and, and African-Americans, mm-hmm. that people connecting around this mm-hmm. new imagination? Mm-hmm. I've seen it a little bit, and I hope to see more of it. Mm-hmm. One thing that I hope follows from all the scholarship being produced is um, artistic production, so, you know, um, more novels, you know, more paintings, more films that I think will take the next step in bringing people together. But there are a few examples that give me quite a lot of hope. 
I mean, one of these examples comes from someone who um, is a, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, who actually um, serves on the tribal council there, and who I encountered years ago doing research. And he was someone who was a little bit, um, how can I put this? He wasn't very open to the idea that descendants of slaves should be Cherokee citizens. And he didn't really want to talk about that aspect of my research with me when we encountered each other in the archives. But over time, we kept seeing each other in the archives, and we started kind of trading notes. And um, at some point during his research, he came across a tidbit about an enslaved woman named Pleasant who uh, worked on the Van Plantation, and he gave me this tidbit about her. Mm. And soon thereafter, he told me that he thought his mind was changing about whether or not descendants of freed people should have citizenship mm. in the Cherokee Nation. So, and again, this was over a matter, you know, of uh, years right. that this um, that change took place. That's right. There's yeah. that time. But I think that it can happen. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it does start with a one-to-one -one relationship that grows and deepens over time. Mm -hmm. I do want to ask you about this Eco Girls uh, project that you've that you're, that you've mm -hmm. started. Does that does that have anything to do with? Uh, I mean, that, that can be just another side of you. But is there a way in which that flows out of some of these same passions with which you do your your public history? Mm -hmm. um, I think it is another side, but it's also linked in my mind around how we can make what we do in university settings relevant to communities. Mm -hmm. It's really important to me to always be doing work that matters, you know, beyond the academy and, and even beyond the page. So um, for me, EcoGirls, which is uh, an educational project that I've launched, launched on campus with a number of um, partners, for me, EcoGirls is a way to take what we can develop in the university around understandings of the natural world, understandings of challenges that we face environmentally uh, into communities that might not have access to that. And in particular, I'm thinking about urban communities in southeastern Michigan, such as Detroit. And what I really want to do with this project is to try to develop leaders for the future, try to teach girls about the natural world, how to be stewards of the world around us so that they can be at the forefront of solving the problems that I know are around the corner mm. um, for all of us uh, in the future. So tell me what you're working on. What's your next big, maybe you're already halfway through it, what's your next <laughs> big subject that you're thinking about, researching, writing about? Well, I think that my next project is going to be looking at slavery and freedom attempts in Michigan and in Ontario. Mm. Um, because um, I, I learned fairly recently that uh, Michigan, although it was technically a free state, um, was a place where black slaves were held mm. and a place where Native American slaves were held. And I came across a couple of court cases um, from the Michigan Territorial Supreme Court where uh, black and Native slaves were suing for their freedom and where their owners, you know, across the, the boundary line between the U.S. and Canada, where their owners were uh, arguing to try to get them back. So I was fascinated by this. It's another chapter, another aspect of black and Native interrelationships and another uh, kind of unexpected twist of U.S. history 
that I just can't resist getting into. Right. And it's a history that we just don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think that may be that may be the end of the interview. And I, I do want to just I want to reflect with you a little bit as um so I grew up in Oklahoma and now live in Minnesota. You did a mm-hmm. lot of your research in Oklahoma, obviously. Um mm-hmm. the former Indian Territory. Um and you did your doctoral work in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And my experience of these two places that have very, I mean, as you say, I mean, I don't think there were, there were slaves in Minnesota, but certainly there's an incredible history of what happened to Indian Native peoples. Right. My, my experience, of, granted, I was a child in one of those times in my life, and I'm an adult in the other, is that these two states have handled that history very differently. Um and I, I mean, that's another dynamic here in terms of Americans taking on this history mm-hmm. of what happened, let's just say, to Native people. Mm-hmm. The, the, the regions are so... Uh, what happened, as you say, in the Northern Plains is, a, is, a, is so completely different. I mean, it has some of the same dynamics. Mm-hmm. How Oklahoma, you know, turned its, I mean gave this land, how this land was given to the five civilized tribes and then taken away. Mm-hmm. Um, and my feeling in Minnesota is that they have made a more, a much bigger effort just to tell the story, to pass it on. But I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm, what's your observation about that, about how different parts of the country grapple differently with this? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that I really think is clear is that some parts of the country feel that they are absolved from um, responsibility um, or knowledge of what went on uh, in their past, of what went on to enable the residents of those states right now to have land that they live on when it used to be indigenous land. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've been talking about the South, for the most part, in Indian Territory. And I think when people think about Indian removal, they imagine the Cherokee Trail of Tears. Yeah. Uh, They imagine a, a route that starts from the South and moves west. And they don't think about the Northeast, um, the Midwest, the Upper Midwest, mm-hmm. as places where Native people were also um, removed or, um, in many ways, forcibly uh, assimilated into Euro-American society and culture. Mm-hmm. So states do interact with their past and represent it differently. Um, but I think that Minnesota is a place where there's such a large population of Native people right now yeah. that um, Native American um, political issues and kind of cultural ways just can't be ignored. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else? I mean, we cover a lot of territory. Is there anything you just want to add that is important to you that I haven't mm-hmm. asked you about or something you didn't say, didn't get to say before? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I should add a disclaimer to some of my comments, Krista, <laughs> like um, because because I mean, I may I think I'm an odd duck in some ways, um, in terms of the way I think about history. Mm-hmm. When I described uh, a metaphysical sort of spiritual aspect to what I do, mm-hmm. I think some historians would cringe at that kind of language. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always felt that um, emotional knowledge is an important aspect of the way that we learn the way that we analyze what it is that we find. And I I can't discount that. 
Yeah. And don't you think that that our culture is that even science is waking us up? Even neuroscience is waking mm-hmm. people oh, up to yes. that. And so waking up the academy yes. then as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's such a good point. Right. When we learn from research in the sciences that while we think we're making rational decisions, <laughs> it's mostly our emotional brain that's acting. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. right. So you're 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 validated. And <laughs> Maybe so. I'm I'm so delighted I can be the one to tell you that. <laughs> So am I, Krista. <laughs> oh, well, it's just, it's been just so great talking to you. I was just, uh, you know, oh, sorry, there's something, there's a question behind the glass. So I'm going to be quiet for a minute while I listen. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting being in the field of journalism right now. Um, Journalism is being changed, obviously, by social media and technology, just like everything else. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I think journalists are on the front line of um, (laughs) taking not just the breaking stories of the news, but but the the immediate voices, right, the immediate stories in Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And figuring out how to do that in a way that has integrity and that that is actually that adds something, as opposed to just just being a free for all. Mm-hmm. Just wonder if you think about that. You know, is there anything that you know from because of the discipline of being a historian that might be useful in uh, in that task of knowing what to do with the immediate profusion of stories now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think the more stories, the merrier. We yeah. need them because we need to make story quilts to have a full understanding of what it is that we're dealing with. I think that maybe um, a comparison in the historical field to what you're talking about has to do with uh, documented written history um, versus oral history. Mm. For a long time, oral history was was viewed as suspect because it wasn't written down and we couldn't trust that it hadn't changed and uh, we couldn't trust that it was verifiable. And yet, I think that oral history has a lot to add to our interpretation of um, a complete picture. Mm. So for, for me and my research, doing oral history meant that I was led to a, a whole new set of documents that I didn't even know existed. I interviewed descendants of um, the Shibuts and Dahl family, and um, the stories that they told me were really in line with what we discussed you know, earlier, having to do with wanting to view that relationship as being purely positive and not admitting that Dahl had been enslaved. Right, so there wanting was that. it to be the relationship that That's right. More, That's mm-hmm. Exactly. There was that piece. But at the same time, there were details and tidbits to the oral history that led me to all kinds of new information. So the family told me that uh, a Confederate general named Stan Wadey, who was Cherokee, was related to their family. I couldn't find documentation of that, but because they told me that, I went and read his papers, and what I found was that the descendants of that family actually were closely involved with the Wadey family. I found all kinds of Hmm. um, small details about where the children of Shibuts and Dahl lived and where they did their shopping and what kinds of things they bought because 
oral history led me to looking at the papers of Stan Dwady. So I, I think I feel the same way about, you know, when we're watching, you know, uh, maybe a, a cable news show and, and um, the tweets are coming in, they yeah, post them right, on the board. I mean, right. Sometimes I feel frustrated by that, thinking I don't want to see the tweets. Yeah. But at the same time, all of that uh, information coming from diverse sources can potentially lead to new and, and better understandings. So it's about staying as alert as you can. Mm-hmm. 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 That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you. I really love this. Um, I want to tell you a story that another came to It's just it so interesting okay. how your story invokes so many stories to me. This is kind of like <laughs> you're being in the Van House. Okay, so I spent most mm-hmm. of the 80s in divided Germany. And... I, got, I don't know why I think there must be some genetic thing here, but I got very kind of emotionally involved in the drama of German history and the Holocaust mm-hmm. and all that. And I went to mm-hmm. the camp, concentration camp at Buchenwald at that time, which was mm-hmm. in East Germany. And the narrative in German hist- in East Germany of history was essentially that the capitalists had been fascists. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, the. The ra- the racial, the, the Jewish thing, which was so irrational and had nothing to do with capitalism, was completely downplayed. Mm-hmm. And the idea, so that you got this sense, and I did spend a semester in an East German university, that uh, it was basically the, the descendants of West Germans who were guilty for that, right? Mm-hmm. And not the East Germans. <laughs> right. So, but anyways, but this was, but I was at the camp, concentration camp Buchenwald, and I went through the entire exhibit, and it was all about, and this was, in fact, a place where a lot of political prisoners had been held, and communists were persecuted in, the, in mm-hmm. fascism as well. But it was all one story after the other about the communists who died here. And then there was this single sentence that said, um, in the museum, that said, Jews died here too. Oh my goodness! Jews died in concentration camps too, and I, mm. I had this. I, I can, I, I still remember my fury. You know, mm-hmm. like I can't remember mm-hmm. many times in my life. I, I sat down and wrote this letter, which I'm sure was immediately torn up, to the mm. head of the museum about how could you, how could you tell the story this way? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, and it's just, I was thinking. I mean, it's it's a completely different context. But when I was thinking about you walking through that house. Mm-hmm. And then there's this piece of the story that you know and right. that you're intimately connected to. And there's some outrage. Um, right. Well, I think your reaction and my reaction, you know, again, they show how important these stories are to us. Mm-hmm. Right. How much we um, interpret ourselves and our places in our world through them. And we want them to be just. We want them to be just because we want a just world. Yeah, and maybe maybe regular people. Um, I mean, I sort of count myself in that. There, that you know, who aren't steeped in history, but you don't have that many experiences where you are, where you so know that history has been violated, right? Mm-hmm. In a mm-hmm. in a big dramatic way, mm-hmm. and I mean to experience that, and maybe that happens all the time, and we're not aware of it. But uh, mm-hmm. but when you when you really know that's what's happening, how what an affront it is, right? As a human being. Mm-hmm. 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 Because in some ways it seems to undercut the humanity of the people who live those lives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've given me so much to think about, and you'll give our listeners so much to think about. And I'm just, uh, I'm really pleased with the MacArthur Foundation for bringing you to my attention. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> thank you, Chris. And congratulations on all that. Uh, yeah. Thank you so very much. Thanks for this conversation. Yeah. It's been really fantastic. Great. And we, we probably will have some questions for you, and you'll get email, and we'll, we'll okay. let you know what's happening. I'm not sure if we're gonna, when we're going to put this on there. It may not be until after the first of the year because we're kind of okay. ahead of ourselves right now and going into the holidays. But thank you. Thank you very much. Right. Great to Have meet you. Have a good you. rest of your day. You Thank too. Thank you. You too. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.